Greetings listeners! The episode that you are about to listen to is episode 8, Oscar Wilde, of H.G. Wells' Hazards Regrets, an audio drama in which science fiction author H.G. Wells builds a time machine and uses it to go back in time to visit all his favourite authors. I happen to be one of the writers for this show, it was actually my first ever foray into podcasting, so I'm absolutely thrilled that it's back and ready for a final round of episodes before it ends. I've really enjoyed working on this project, and I suspect that if you like the writing on a pilgrimage saga, then you will definitely enjoy H.G. Wells' Has His Regrets just as much. Some of the authors featured in upcoming episodes will include the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, and science fiction legend Mary Shelley. So if this sounds up your alley, go and subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss out on anything. Alright, enough from me. Have a great day, and enjoy the episode. Francesca out. Greetings, this is H.G. Wells, log set S1, log 8, and today I find myself in the presence of a literary giant, both figuratively and literally, a man whose work will surely never age, poet and playwright Oscar Wilde. flatter me, Mr. Wells. It's simply a delight to make your acquaintance. The delight is all mine, I assure you. No, honestly, I'm truly charmed to be in the presence of an esteemed author of the future. I've met many a man who could be called ahead of our time. I perhaps consider myself one, but never a man who quite literally is. Well, unless there's another one who owns a time machine, perhaps from a future beyond my own, I think I may be the only one. Does that... Does that always happen when you say... Never mind. Well then, it is even more pleasing to be one of those rare few to meet the one and only time traveller. Please do help yourself to some tea. You must be tired after your long journey. Why, thank you. Though I wouldn't say the journey was long, per se. I mean, in terms of spatial and temporal dimensions, I suppose you could say it was long as I did travel over a decade into the past, but in terms of actual time passing as experienced personally, it only took, by my judgments, around a minute or so. What's funny is that... As interesting as your observations on time travel are, Mr. Wells, my observations indicate that the tremble in your hand will most likely lead to you dropping my lovely blue china if you're not careful. Hmm? Oh, yes, of course, I apologize. Wouldn't want that to happen. How odd. I don't usually have this problem. Perhaps I'm just tired. I've been very busy lately. Perhaps so, darling. Or perhaps it's simply from the thrill of meeting me. I do love an earnest man. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Also, had you dropped it, you would have spilt tea all over that wonderful suit of yours. This old thing? You like it? Surprised. Shall I tell you why I like it, Mr. Wells? Because it's green. Like the famous green carnation worn by an actor in the first performance of Lady Windermere's fan? 
true, but wrong reasoning. Of course, an Englishman wouldn't understand. Of course, you're Irish, green like Ireland. And don't you forget it. Proudly born and raised in Dublin, my father was Ireland's leading auto-ophthalmologist. He was knighted for his involvement with the Irish census, you know, and my mother, the brilliant woman she is, wrote poetry for the Young Islanders' Revolution. She used to read them to my brother Willie and I when we were young. So proudly Irish. And yet your accent, or lack thereof it, would seem to suggest otherwise. Oh, posh. It's not the sound of the voice that matters, Mr. Wells, but the words that are spoken. I wouldn't say your voice would be something I'd record and listen back to, but the content of your words outweighs the quality. Well, I think I sound very different in recording than in reality. Well, I'm in no place to judge, I suppose. Hmm. Well, anyway, back to the conversation at hand. You went to Trinity in Dublin, I believe. Indeed I did. I was a rather outstanding student there, if I do say so myself. I came first in my class, won a scholarship, and then in my finals I won the Berkeley Gold Medal, the highest academic award in Greek. Rather might be putting it lightly. And so then, of course, as most well-to-do gentlemen seem to do, you went off to Oxford. Naturally. I competed for the demi-ship to Magdalen College, and, well, I say competed, but there really was no competition. Nine years of Greek study and a general lifelong admiration of the neoclassical really make such a thing natural. A walk in the park, one might say. Is modesty a foreign concept to you? My dear Mr. Wells, one might say it's all Greek to me, but seeing as I speak fluent Greek, the phrase quickly loses its meaning. How about French? Ce n'est pas la mer à boire. And that's a foreign concept to me. Though, speaking of foreign places, you left Ireland for Oxford, along with your Irish accent, but here is where your interest in aestheticism flourished. Oh, how could it not? Have you ever been to Oxford? As cities go, there's none that quite compare. The curvature of the archways, the way the river winds its way between the trees. I'll never forget how the towering walls of Magdalen College seem to stretch upwards to touch the sky. Magnificent. The old city architects really knew how to create a world to please the eye. Nothing like the modern structures we see nowadays. I'm rather of the opinion that planners are beginning to lose their touch. Or at least their connection to the artistic soul. All their inspiration comes from money rather than love. Now, what do you think of that, Mr. Wells? Well, I'd certainly agree that modern architecture is somewhat lacking in the unique charm of days gone by, but in the evolution of all things, there comes a stage of progression where things perhaps look a little uninspired. But just think of what wonders are to come when the next stage of design arrives. How fascinating and new it will all be. Fascinating and new doesn't always mean beautiful. All these new buildings are built merely for purpose and affordability, cheaply as possible. Dearest, one does not care for the art of design anymore, the aesthetic, the decadence. All right, my dear Mr. Wells, I can accept. Darling is pushing it, but dearest is a little too much. Oh, I had merely the most innocuous intentions. I meant nothing by it, dear, I swear. 
You're the one prescribing any meaning to such a thing. What? Then again, some say you only hear what you want to hear. You only interpret the meaning you wish to believe. Speaking of interpreting meaning, in art, a core belief in asceticism is art for art's sake. Do you wish to elaborate on your own beliefs? Well, in regards to art for art's sake, I had rather a penchant for it in my Oxford days. Walter Pater, a wonderful lecturer of mine, was a great encouragement. You should have seen my room, how ostentatious it was, lavishly decorated with peacocks, lilies, sunflowers, and my beloved blue china, of course. And why? Because it was beautiful. No further reasoning beyond that. Do we always need to make an excuse as to why something should be a certain way? Do we need to have an excuse for something that can be exquisite to be exquisite? I think not. If something has the potential to be beautiful, then it should be allowed to flourish and be so. However, I don't fully believe that all art should be completely devoid of deeper meaning. Ruskin, another of my most influential tutors, believed that the beauty within art should link to good morals, that it should somehow better society. I once assisted him in a project to convert an ugly swamp-like lane into a lovely flower-lined road. So which side do I take now? That of Ruskin or Pater? Well, I say, why not both? Art can be art for no other reason than simply being art. But it can also be used to convey a moral, if one so wishes. I, I see. Thank you. My answer was quite enough for you. Yes, yes, indeed. Very much so. It's just, well, I think that may have been the first time in these little interviews I've been conducting so far that I have received a complete serious answer to a question that I have asked. Really? How amusing that I am the only one to give a straight answer. <laughs> There's a great irony in that. Indeed. I understand what you're saying, though. Why close yourself off to the opinion of one when you can take from both and form your own? Exactly, Mr. Wells. Life is too short to be so narrow-minded. You should live life to its fullest extent. Why not bathe in all the riches life gives us and drown in liquid gold? Die, yes. But die well. Yes, quite right. Though there's a sad irony to that too. And that irony would be... Oh, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the themes embedded within your most famous of novels, The Picture of Dorian Gray. The story of a man who sells his soul, in hope that, by remaining beautiful and doing all that he impulsively desires, that he will be forever happy and never die. Ah, yes. In deciding that beauty and self-indulgence is all that is worth pursuing in life, he damns himself. <laughs> oh, well, perhaps it's true that I too strive for both, but I'd hope the glimmer of a conscience I have intact saves me from damnation at the very least. I hope so too. But arguably, nothing could have saved your book from the damnation of the critics. No, damn the critics. You see, art is meant to be appreciated for all its hard effort and beauty. Some critics turn a blind eye to that. They only see art for its flaws. 
They look for its failures rather than accomplishments. And above all, remember what I said earlier, Mr. Wells, that one only interprets the meaning they wish to believe. They wish to find something poisonous within Dorian Gray, some slander they could throw at me, knock me from my pedestal. And so they found it. When they read my book, they only read what they wanted to read. That may be so, but perhaps it also simply wasn't to the general tastes of critics. In all criticism, personal belief, experience and preference is inexorably tied to the critic's interpretation and resulting opinions on the subjects they're critiquing. Oh, and how smart he is too. Yes, criticism itself is subjective, above sincerity and above reason. And even though your novel may have been struck down by critics, your plays, such as Lady Windermere's fan, have been hugely lauded. Wildly successful, one might say. You withstood making that pun for much longer than I thought you would. Had to save it for the right moment. Timing is everything. But yes, uh, wildly successful is an accurate description. Your plays just seem to have something enduring about them. I myself have dabbled in theatre criticism in my time. Oh, really? Yes. Now, I don't really like or feel as though I truly understand theatre. Then what gives you the right to have an opinion on it? They were desperate times. If you do not possess the knowledge and understanding of the subject you're critiquing, in this case, theatre, then what gives you the authority to write a valid criticism? How can you write and comment critically and credibly on something you do not understand? <sighs> You'd think after speaking with two other theatre fanatics, I'd have learned my lesson on bringing this up. <laughs> I can't decide if you're brave, a fool, or somehow both. Nonetheless, I never finished my point. What I was trying to say is that despite my wavering comprehension and appreciation for theatre, I had the chance to see and review a play of yours, and I very much enjoyed it. I wanted to tell you I thought it was quite magnificent. Oh, thank you, dearie. Truly, I'm flattered, Mr. Wells. But now I must ask, which of my plays was it that managed to enchant the one whom is disenchanted by theatre? Ah, unfortunately, I cannot say. It's of future concerns, and as you know, that's one thing I cannot discuss. I only hope the world of the future is ready for me, and the great amount I have yet to give to it. I don't think the world could ever be quite ready for you, Oscar. <laughs> quite right you are, Mr. Wells, quite right you are. Please, no need for formalities. HG will do fine. Oh, dropping formalities. We're moving fast now, aren't we? Time is a limited thing. Well, actually it's infinite, but that's besides the point. Our time is limited, and so I think it's best to move fast in this case. Friends need not formalities, and I wouldn't want to invite someone who wasn't a friend, or at least acquaintance, to a house party, would I? Oh. Oh, an invitation. Dear Oscar Wilde, you are cordially invited. Oh, you're inviting him. Oh dear, not him. Interesting. Oh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is attending. Yes, he's my neighbour. 
Oh, how delightful. It'll be a joy to see the old chap again. Well, I say old, but I'm older than him only by the times at which the earth was graced with our presence. You? No Doyle? Know him, H.G. Why, we're friends, I'd say. Most of our contact is via writing nowadays, sadly. Both as busy as we are. Or as you said, we have limited time. Did he never mention it to you? No. Well, he might have mentioned it once. Let's just say I don't have the greatest focus in all our conversations. I understand. He does like to talk, but then again, so do I. Perhaps that's why we get on. <laughs> How did the two of you first meet? We met at a dinner party with Joseph Stoddard, editor of Lippincott's magazine, Philadelphia. He wanted to start an English edition and so naturally needed writers to contribute. The two of us got on swimmingly and in the end we both had a deal with Stoddard to write stories for Lippincott's. Mine was the picture of Dorian Gray and his? Well, I'd be surprised if you didn't know. Sherlock Holmes, the sign of four. His second Holmes story, yes. One faithful meeting between ourselves and Stoddard, and our careers were launched irreversibly. Fascinating how fate works, isn't it? My, I look forward to seeing him, an old man. Perhaps for a moment he'll think me a true Dorian Gray. Immortal? We can only hope, my dear. And with that, I suppose I should be off. I look forward to speaking with you again, Oscar. But until then, my name is H.G. Wells, this has been Oscar Wilde, and the only things you can truly regret are the opportunities you never take. This podcast was brought to you by Turpentine Productions. You can find us on Tumblr, now Turpentine Productions, Twitter at H.G. Wells Regrets, and Facebook at HG Wells Has His Regrets. Or check out our website, www.hgwellshashisregrets.wordpress.com. This episode of HG Wells Has His Regrets was written and produced by Emily Hancock and Francesca Mylod Ford. Music was composed by Emily Hancock and Joash Kari with sound design by John Black. This show was created and executive produced by Emily Hancock. H.G. Wells was voiced by James Carpenter. Oscar Wilde was voiced by Credence Fours. This podcast is fictitious and all characters within are merely fictional interpretations of the people they're based on and are not to be taken as serious or accurate portrayals. We'll end the episode with a quote from Oscar Wilde's Vera or The Nihilists. Life is much too important a thing ever to talk seriously about. Thanks for listening.